So I just want to start this morning just kind of more on a, on a bit of a personal note. Um, and Noelle, she knows this well about me. And, and others of you that may know me, I kind of tend to joke around about this a little bit as well. But um, if you get to know me more, uh, a little better um, in personal situations, you'll know that I'm really fascinated by um, something that a lot of people are really uncomfortable with. I'm fascinated with socially awkward situations. I, I just, I, I'm just really fascinated by them, the way people respond and react. And you know, those, those moments where um, somebody may say something a little bit maybe off color or faux pas or taboo or just maybe say the wrong thing at the wrong time. And what's so fascinating, fascinating to me about these situations is everybody in the room or everybody in that setting, they know it's awkward, Right. They know it's tense. It's like you can just cut the tension in the air, but it would make it even more awkward and more socially just kind of weird if somebody were to call it out and just be like, this is awkward, right? And I used to always be that one guy growing up in college that would just call it out and just be like, this is awkward, you know, because just, hey, like, let's call it what it is, right? I, I still remember my, uh, my cross-country coach in college. He'd, just, he'd say, Enderby, you just like awkward situation. You just like to make things awkward, don't you? So I've tried to learn. I've tried to keep my mouth shut as I've, as I've grown, grown up. I had a friend that, um, he hated these awkward moments so much, these socially awkward moments so much that he would literally get up and relieve himself from the room. He'd just get up and then he'd be like, I hate this. It was too much for him. And then I'd get a text from him about three or four minutes later and say, is it okay to come back in? And, okay, Luke, you can come back in now. And um, so this morning, if I make things awkward, sorry, not sorry, but no, I'm just joking. We won't go there. But continuing our series in Luke this morning, as we dig into Luke chapter 20, what we're going to see Jesus walking through, what he's walking into, was probably a little bit tense. It was probably a little bit awkward for the onlookers for the bystanders, as Jesus dialogues back and forth with the religious leaders. But for Jesus, for Jesus, this was more than just some silly, socially awkward situation. For Jesus, what we're going to see, there were real repercussions. The stakes were high for him. His character is being questioned. His authority and identity are being challenged, and Jesus is met with very real opposition. And what I want to look at this morning is how does Jesus respond to this opposition? What gives Jesus the confidence? What gives Jesus the boldness to, like we're going to see in review in a little bit, what gives him the boldness and the confidence to go into the temple and call out the sin that's being blatantly accepted to proclaim in the temple to say, hey, you're turning the temple that's supposed to be a place of prayer, a house of prayer for the nations. You're turning it in to a den of robbers and then to walk back into the temple for the next couple days to these very people he just called out and to continue to teach and preach while being opposed by the religious leaders. What gives Jesus the audacity, the confidence to do this. So we're going to be jumping back into the Gospel of Luke, 
picking up where we left off the week before Easter. We took a little break um, last week, starting in Luke chapter 20. So if you want to get ready to go there, you can open your Bibles to, um, to Luke chapter 20. But before we uh, read our, our section of scripture for today, before we do that, I just want to do a quick overview. Um, a lot's happened in the last two weeks. I can forget a lot that's happened in the last two weeks. So I just want to do a quick recap of where we're at so we can get a better feel for the context and in the environment, what, what, what we're feeling um, coming up to Luke chapter 20. So what's happened is Jesus, for the last three years, um, he's ministered publicly. He's known throughout the region. His fame has spread throughout the region. He's known amongst the common people. His, his fame has even spread. His notoriety has even spread all the way up to, up to the Roman leaders, the governors. They know who this Jesus is. He's performed miracles. He's raised people from the dead. Everybody knows who this Jesus is. And now, coming up to Luke 20, like we've read the last couple weeks, it's the week of Passover. It's just one week, just one week before he's going to go to the cross, and he gives his disciples some hard news. He tells his disciples, hey, this is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be crucified. And three days later, I'm going to rise again. And obviously his disciples, they don't get it. They don't understand. But to fulfill the prophecies, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And all the crowds are excited, right? Like, it seems like everybody's excited. There's anticipation. There's joy. They're worshiping him. They're praising him. They're waving palm branches. It's the triumphal entry. And then he proceeds, the very next thing to do is he proceeds to enter the temple and he sets things straight. He calls people out. He calls the sin out. He rebukes those who are turning the temple into a place where sin is blatantly allowed. And that's where we left off, the very end of Luke chapter 19. Jesus clears house in the temple. And here's where we're going to pick up today in Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 1. So Luke chapter 20, verse 1 says this. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. And he, and Jesus, answers them. I also will ask you a question. Now tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? So they discussed it with one another, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death. For they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Would you guys pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your goodness in giving us your word. God, I pray that your word this morning would illuminate our hearts by your Holy Spirit. I pray that your word would illuminate our hearts 
God, that you would convict our hearts where there needs to be conviction, that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged. God, that you would rebuke us where we need rebuking. Holy Spirit, come and do this morning what you love to do, what you desire to do, what you were sent to do. Stir in us through these words an affection and a love for your son, Jesus, and his greatness and his glory and his renown. Please do that for us through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the very first thing I want to note here, it's really kind of easy to miss. Um, I listened to this in preparing uh, the last couple of weeks. I, I listened to this on audio Bible probably 60, 70, 80 times on my way to work and home just to get a feel for it, just to meditate on it, ponder it. And the first couple of times I listened to this, I missed it. It's like, it's so obvious. It's just right in front of it, right in front of us. And I missed it. The first thing I want to note, it's, it's of huge importance, is that we see Jesus teaching and preaching the gospel. And it's always so obvious. We're like, yeah, of course, that's what Jesus is doing, right? Like, he's Jesus. That's what he does. Like, that's what he's coming, like that Geico commercial, right? It's what you do. Like, that's what Jesus does, right? Excellent points. Uh, hey, Jesus teaches and preaches the gospel. But I want to dig into this just a little bit deeper, the context of what's happening here. I want us to think about this and ponder this. It's important to note, Jesus is about to die in just a couple days. He knows what's at stake. He knows what's about to happen to him. And he knows, Jesus knows the very words he's teaching and preaching and proclaiming. He knows those same words are going to be twisted against him and used to condemn him. But what does he continue to do? He continues to teach and preach the good news without hesitation. He's bold in the way, like we saw these last couple of weeks, he's bold in the way he walks in the t- into the temple with complete authority and he calls out sin where sin needs to be called out. He proclaims truth. He sets things straight and then he continues to walk into the temple day after day that week and proclaim the truth about the kingdom of God. And immediately, what happens next? The second point this morning, what happens next? As Jesus is teaching and preaching the gospel, he's met with opposition. He's met with questioning. His authority and identity are being brought into question. A shadow of doubt is cast on Jesus' character. And really what's happening is, is the religious leaders, they're trying to put Jesus in a bad light. They're trying to paint a negative picture of who he is. Essentially what they're what they're commanding Jesus to do and they're questioning is they're saying, Jesus, what right do you have come marching into the temple and saying what you're saying? Jesus, who are you to do this? What education do you have? What right do you have to say what you have to say and do what you have to do? Who gave you this authority? You can't just come into our domain and start saying these things. What gives you the right, Jesus? What gives you the authority? And I want to take a moment and pause here and note a biblical reality that I think a lot of times, I often, I think a lot of us, all of us, we really, 
we just kind of assume, but we really never think about the implications or we're surprised, I should say, by the implications. And that reality is when the gospel is taught and preached, it's nearly always met with opposition. In fact, Jesus even tells us, Jesus tells us, he's clear, that when the gospel is taught, when it's preached, when we proclaim the gospel with our lives, we should even expect opposition. So what's happening to Jesus here, it's not an anomaly. It's not some sort of rare occurrence. It's a common theme throughout the entire Bible. We see this starting with Noah, right? He preaches the truth. He tells the people, hey, this is what God's going to do. What's happened? He's met with opposition. We see this with the prophets in the, Old, in the Old Testament. God gives them a word to say to the people or the kings. What happens? He's met with opposition. We see this with Jesus' life, obviously, right? He's met with opposition. We see this with the disciples. What happens? They teach, they proclaim the truth, they're met with opposition. We see this in the early church. We see this throughout history. The gospel goes out, the gospel's proclaimed, and what happens? It's met with opposition, where the truth of God's word is spoken, where the gospel is preached, the implications are, the reality is, is most of the time, we too are going to be met with opposition. There's going to be a shadow of doubt cast on our character. The words we speak are going to be twisted against us. We're going to be questioned on what grounds can you say these things that God calls us to say. So what I was convicted of as I was preparing for this, what came to my heart, what I wrestled with, is why am I so surprised? Why are we so surprised when we're being obedient to the gospel, when we're called to proclaim the truth with, a time, with our time, the resources God's given us, our position in life, to our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, if we're called to proclaim this gospel, why do we get so freaked out when we know there's potential for opposition? Jesus said it was going to be here, right? We see this all throughout scripture, but why do we get so freaked out when the implications, when the implication, when it's real right in front of us, why do we get so freaked out by those implications? So as a church family, as individuals, if we're told we're going to be met with opposition, if we're told, if we're forewarned, hey, you're going to be met with opposition as we proclaim the gospel with our lives, what I want to look at this morning is what's our approach? How are we to prepare? How are we to encourage one another? How are we to respond when there's opposition or even the potential for opposition? So what I want to look at this morning what I want to draw our attention to is the stark contrast between the way that Jesus responds to opposition and the way the religious leaders and the, and the scribes respond to the questioning and opposition. Because both were met with opposition, right? Jesus was opposed to the religious leaders righteously, right? He was, he was doing the right thing. And the religious leaders, they're opposed to Jesus unrighteously, but they're both met with opposition, but the differences in how and why each responds is vastly different. Their motivation is vastly different. And we see this very clearly in our text for today. So first of all, 
how does Jesus respond to the challenges and the opposition of the religious leaders? Well, it's obvious. You know, we don't have to go far into this, right? We see Jesus, he's bold, he's passionate, he responds with wisdom, with clarity, with authority. But why? Why can he respond so well? I think the answer is found is because he's not moved, he's not swayed, he's not concerned with what the people are going to think about him. In fact, the religious leaders, they notice this in Jesus themselves. There's another account, there's a parallel account of this in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 22, there's a, a, there's a parallel account of Jesus' dialogue back and forth with the religious leaders. Matthew points this out. The Gospel of Luke doesn't. But Matthew points out, we get a glimpse of what the religious leaders think about Jesus. So in Matthew chapter 22, verse 16, notes that the religious leaders, they say this to Jesus. They say, Jesus. They say, teacher. Listen to what they say about Jesus. They say, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and that you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. It's interesting. That's what they note about Jesus, right? They say, you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. The only thing Jesus cares about, the only thing that Jesus is concerned about, is doing the will of the Father. I think it's interesting to note what Hegarty, what he, what he shared this morning That's what Jesus came to do, right? The will of the Father. That's what Jesus says over and over and over. I came to do the will of the Father. I only do what I see the Father doing. I only speak what I hear the Father speaking. I'm not going to do anything else. That's what compels Jesus. That's what motivates Jesus. That's what causes him to be absolutely resolute in everything he does, is the Father's will. So Jesus is 100% free from the bondage of appearances. He's 100% free from the love of what other people are going to think about him. The only thing Jesus is concerned with is doing the Father's will and the glory of his name. Now, in contrast, let's flip this on its head. Let's look at this negatively. What are the religious leaders and scribes, what are they concerned with? How do they respond when they're kind of pushed into a corner? How do they respond? Well, we see Jesus in verse 3. He responds to the Pharisees' challenge with a question about John's baptism. So we see the Pharisees, they, they say, Jesus, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. And then Jesus answers them with a question about John's, bap- John's baptism. He says, I also will ask you a question. Now you tell me. He challenges them. He says, now you tell me, was the, bat- was the baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from man? Was it from heaven or was it from man? And immediately... What do the religious leaders do? Well, they kind of get in their own little corner and they have a little powwow, right? They have a little discussion amongst themselves. And how do they respond? They try to come up with an answer 
that's going to appease the people. That's not going to make them look foolish. That's the most that's what they're really concerned with is what the people are going to think, how the people are going to respond. And why do they want to appease the crowds? Because they're fearful of them. We see this later on. They say, man, if we say this is for man, the people, they're going to pick up rocks and they're going to stone us. They're being motivated out of fear. They want to appease the crowds. They know the right answer. They know John's baptism was from God. They know the right answer to Jesus's question. But the fear of the people and love of their own reputation causes them to withdraw. And this is a common theme we see with the, with the religious leaders that they go back and forth. We're going to see this um, in the next couple chapters as well, as, as Chris preaches this in the next couple months. It's a common theme. Over and over, we see the religious leaders, they have a plan. It's an unrighteous plan, but they're always thwarted <laughs> by their own fear of the people. They want to do something, but they get freaked out because they're, they're afraid of what the people are going to say or do. And Jesus knows this. So Jesus asks a question that's going to expose their hearts. Jesus makes an example of them. He very clearly uses his question to reveal what's really important to them. Their concern for the truth isn't really important, right? They're not really concerned with the authority of Jesus. They're not really concerned with the truth. The truth is, and Jesus exposes them, that when the stakes are high, when they're pressed into a corner, when there's going to be real implications, they're more concerned with what people are going to think of them and how they think people are going to respond. And I like how one commentary um, explains this, and I think I have a, a slide for this as well. It's a little complex, at least it is for me. Um, but it says this. This is how one com commentary explains it. It says, They, the religious leaders and scribes, chose rather to sacrifice their consciences over their interest and pretend ignorance rather than profess the truth when they saw they should be put to confusion or be exposed to the resentment of the people. I'll paraphrase that. They chose to sacrifice their conscience and pretend ignorance when exposed to the resentment of the people. When their reputation was on the line, they shrunk back. When they knew there was going to be resentment, they withdrew. So again, I want to ask the question this morning. I've been asking this of myself. I've been wrestling with this myself the last couple of weeks. When we're pressed, when the stakes are high, when there's the potential to be pressed, man, I think about this in my own life. You know, being a bivocational pastor, having even just that label on me, an elder. Like I remember even going in um, when I when I got this uh, job about eight months ago, new job. Um, people nowadays they Google your name before you. Um, Get a, go into a job interview. And I remember um, one of the, the CFO of the company, he came in and he interviewed me and he said, hey, I did a Google search and noticed that you're an elder at your church. Tell me about that. Wow, that's an interesting conversation, right? He knows that about me. There's potential for resentment. There's potential for opposition. Conversations that we have, right? Right? 
want to ask the question. I want to ask that question of us. Are we more concerned with what people are going to think about, about us? Or are we more concerned about doing the will of the Father? Is our response more like that of Jesus? More, more like that of the religious leaders? Now, recently I heard a, um, this is a really interesting, it's a fascinating story, interview. I heard a podcast that Voice of the Martyr, they posted, and actually the, Mad- the Maddens, they, um, they sent me a link, an email to it, and had a chance to listen to it about three or four weeks ago. It was really timely with this. But it's an interview with one of the only known, now listen to this, it's an interview with one of the only known modern-day living Bible smugglers who's been caught in North Korea and released. His name is John Short. He's an Australian guy. And um, his testimony is so rare because first off, just to be let into North Korea, into North Korea being a, um, a professing Christian, and it's fascinating the way he was even let in. He said, I'm not going to, he had his Bible there with him. And he said, I'm not going to go into the country unless you let me have my Bible with me. I don't bring my Bible, or I don't go anywhere my Bible doesn't go. I have to have my Bible with him. Miraculously, they let him in. But just for him to go into North Korea as a professing Christian is extremely rare. But if you get caught distributing Christian material like John Short did, it's a crime against the government. And the chances are, of you ever getting released are hardly zero. In case you don't know, there's not really good relations with any country in the world. With North Korea, your ambassador is probably not going to get you out. Essentially, if you get caught for this crime against the government, you might as well just forget who you are. You're there for the rest of your life. Miraculously, he, uh, he's set free, and it's a fascinating testimony. Madden's can send you the link or I can send you the link, but they try to use all sorts of intimidation against him. But in this interview, what was so fascinating and what really stuck out to me is one of the voice of the martyr folks, when they're interviewing, interviewing him, they ask him this, they asked him, John, how did you prepare yourself? Even as a husband, how did you prepare your wife? knowing that you're going to leave your wife at home back in Australia and you're going to enter one of the most dangerous countries in the world. I shouldn't say one of the most, the most dangerous country countries in the world to distribute Christian literature. How did you prepare yourself? You had to know the stakes were high, right? Your family had to know the stakes were high. And his response is incredible. And I'm going to paraphrase him just for time's sake. But essentially he says, and this wasn't his first stint going into a a very dangerous country, but essentially he says this. He said, I had to resolve a long time ago two different things. He said, I had to know that I know that I know, first of all, in my heart, that nothing can happen to me outside of the will of God. If God's called me to do something, nothing can happen to me outside of the will of God. And I have to be obedient to me. And he said, the second thing I had to resolve is if I'm put in any situation, in any compromising situation, any fear, intimidation, he said, I have to know that I know that I cannot be given over to the fear or intimidation 
of what man can do to me. He said, I had to know that I know that I know these things before I enter these situations. Essentially, this man, what's he doing? He's just mimicking the example of Christ, like we see here in the Gospel of Luke. He knows the authority of God, and he doesn't concern himself with what people can say about him, how people can intimidate him, or what they can do to him. The only thing he's concerned about is, hey, what's God called me to do? I need to walk this out. I need to be obedient to the Father's will. You know, and thinking about these things this morning, um, I want you to hear me on this as well. You know, this isn't this isn't a message. This isn't a sermon to get us, you know, all feeling. Because <laughs> I know it can tend to be, you know, sermons like this. They can tend to get us feeling guilty and ashamed. When we think about the last month, we're like, man, I blew it with this neighbor or this coworker. Or, man, I just seem to be shrinking back all the time. You know, this is some tactic to get us, you know, emotionally just charged up and be like, man, I need to start going to my neighbors and knocking on their doors. Or I need to go out to Oak Park Mall this afternoon and start handing out tracts or something like that. That's not what this is about about but i hope what this example does i hope what the scripture does is i hope it does cause a little bit of uneasiness in us i hope this holy spirit inside of us does convict us of those times where we see you know what man it sure is easy to talk about the gospel when i'm at care group or at church it sure is easy to say man i want to proclaim But you know what? When the implications are real, the reality is when it comes down to my own reputation, when the stakes are high, when I'm pressed into a corner, you know what? Man, I find myself, I tend to find myself just shrinking back. This is hard. You know, it makes me think, um, just a couple weeks ago, Chris, he preached a sermon on worship called Up and Out, all right? It's Up and Out how our worship of God goes up to him and then out to others. So how our worship of God, it goes, it, it, it goes up to him and then it's, and then it's, you know, reaches its, its fulfillment, its completion when it goes out to the nations, when it goes out to our neighborhoods and our, and our coworkers and our city, right? How our worship has to do with not just proclaiming God at church on Sunday morning, worshiping him at church, but then it goes out And then he gave us, remember those Easter pamphlets that he gave us? Those things made me really nervous. They made me really uncomfortable. You know, he asked us to pass those out to our friends and neighbors and coworkers. And I don't know about you, but those things, they kind of mess me up a little bit. I don't like them very much. I don't like that challenge. I was talking with a, (laughs) I think we had somebody over for dinner um, that weekend. We're just talking about how easy it is for our kids to hand things like that out. Why? Because they have no inhibition, right? They could care less what anybody thinks about them. So we're like, yeah, I'll give it to my kids. They'll they'll pass it out to their friends. We're like, let them do the dirty work. Let them do the hard stuff, right? But it's challenges like that. It's encouragement like that. It's exhortation like that, that it exposes what's in my heart. What do I really care about? Why do I get afraid? You know, I think it's, it's, it's something we need to stop and think. It's not just enough to say, hey, you know what? I'd like to encourage you to, to pass out these pamphlets. But if we see some fear, if we see some intimidation 
rising up in heart in our hearts, I think we need to stop at those moments and we need to ask ourselves, what's going on in my heart? Why does this mess with me so much? Why am I intimidated by this? Like, I know I can read the scriptures. I know this is like, we all know this is what we're supposed to be doing, right? But why does this mess with me so much? And I don't want it to end there. You know, as we gather in our care groups, let's talk about this. Like, if we're going to be a church that proclaims the gospel with our lives... We need to expect the opposition. We need to know that these implications are real. And if we get freaked out over that, that's fine, you guys. But let's talk about it. Let's call it out, right? Let's not just pretend that it's like, oh, man, let's, you know, evangelization. It's like the E word. It's scary, right? But if we're going to teach our kids and we're going to model this example for our kids and it freaks us out, we have a hard time doing this, let's just confess it with one another and say, you know what? As a church family... Man, we're not that great at this. Like, we shrink back. We shy back. And I'm not just talking about times of, you know, of, you know, with outsiders. This could be just proclaiming truth with another brother or sister. Let's not just stop here on a Sunday morning. Let's just not stop with that uneasiness. Let's pray about these things together. I was thinking about our prayer gathering on, on Wednesday evening. We're going to gather to prayer to pray in Dave's exhortation. It was excellent. Or I should say Jonathan Edwards' exhortation. Um, it, it was excellent. But, but with that, how amazing would it be if, you know what, we just got together on Wednesday night and we just prayed about these things. We said, you know what, this is as a church family, as individuals, as individuals, this is what we want to be about. We want to be a church where we're not ashamed to with our lives, with the resources that God's given us, that we be stewards Everything he's, he's, he's given us, the positions he's given us in life, our neighbors, our finances, our time, with everything we have, even though the stakes may be high, even though our reputations may be on the line, you know what? God's glory far surpasses any of that. That we'd be a church family that is far more concerned, that we'd be individuals that are far more concerned with God's glory than, and honor than our reputation. And in closing, the last thing I want to note here is there's some, there's some real irony. And I love irony. I don't know who doesn't like irony. But there's some irony in this, in this testimony here in Luke 20. There's irony in the way that the religious leaders challenge the authority of Jesus. Because in essence, what are they saying to Jesus? They're asking Jesus, so they're saying, Jesus, what right do you have? What authority do you have to teach these people and proclaim this gospel of yours? Jesus, what authority do you have? And friends, (laughs) man, little did they know who they were talking to, right? Their eyes were blinded to the truth. And we have to remember the implication of that as well as we're talking to our friends Co-workers and neighbors, their eyes are blinded to the truth. There was Jesus right in front of them. There was Jesus, the Son of God, in flesh, talking with them. The one who, like Hebrews 1 says, is the radiance of the glory of God. Right in front of them, they're having a conversation with him, and they miss it. 
they can't see it. If there is ever anyone who could walk into the temple and perfectly teach and preach and proclaim the kingdom of God, it's this man right in front of them who they're questioning his authority. It's Jesus himself, right? It's all taking place right in front of them, right in front of their very eyes. Their eyes are blinded to it. And this Jesus, the Son of God, full of power and wisdom and authority, this Jesus, who Hebrews 1 says is the radiance of the glory of God, who is given all power and authority, who's omnipotent in his power, what has this Jesus come to do? He humbles himself. He takes the form of a servant. He, ta- he lives a perfect life, and in doing so, he becomes the perfect sacrifice for us sinners. He lays aside all of his power, all of the glory of heaven, to do what? To rescue sinners to rescue people like us who completely reject his authority, who willingly rebel against his authority, who oppose his authority. Jesus takes our sin. He takes the punishment we deserve for our rebellion. And he dies on the cross. He dies a sinner's death. He bears the full wrath of his father, of his father's judgment in our place. So this morning, if you're listening here and you'd say, you know what? I'm not sure about the authority of Jesus. I'm not sure about these claims that Jesus makes about himself. You know what? I very simply, I just pray that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes to his goodness and his grace and his mercy. What he's done, what he laid aside, his sacrifice. And if you have questions this morning, I don't want to assume, I don't want to assume anybody in this room knows or has given themselves to the authority of God. If you have questions about that, I'd love to talk with you about that. I know Dave would love to talk with you about that. Talk with the person that you're here with. Please talk with the person that you're here with or one of us. If you have given yourself to Christ's rule, if you have given yourself to his reign, to his authority, man, I pray that we as a church, you as individuals, you with your family, with your spouse, that you would worship God for everything he's accomplished for you, that you'd be compelled, that you'd be motivated by his glory, by his sacrifice to preach, to proclaim with everything he's given you, every opportunity to proclaim his glory. And second, man, plan for opposition. Don't be freaked out when it happens. Expect it. Don't be surprised when your words are twisted and used against you. Don't get all bent out of shape. Like, let's, let's encourage one another so we don't get all bent out of shape. And we start whining, complaining. And we're like, man, why is this happening? Like, why are my neighbors treating me like this is weird? And we don't have to go up and seek it. It's going to happen to us. Let's not get bent out of shape or start whining or, you know, take to Facebook or Twitter like, oh, this is so unjust. It's like, we see this in scripture. If they did it to Jesus, they're going to do it to us. If they did it to the prophets, they're going to do it to us. If they did it to the the apostles, they're going to do it to us. The spirit of Christ is living inside of us. There will be opposition. 
Let's encourage one another with that. If we're afraid, let's call it out. Let's confess it. Let's pray with one another about this. Let's encourage one another with this. I want to end with this, Matthew 5, 11. Jesus says this. Matthew 5, 11. Jesus says, Blessed are you, Providence, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Providence, blessed are you. Blessed. Blessed are you. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. That's the promise. That's the truth. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would stir in our hearts. God, I pray that you would stir in our hearts a love for the gospel, a love for Jesus. Father God, I even pray that, God, as we go to the table here in a couple minutes, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us. God, that your Holy Spirit would reveal to us areas of, in our, areas of our heart where we shrink away from that proclamation of the gospel. Holy Spirit, please do what you love to do and expose truth to us. Reveal God's glory. God, expose in us sin in our hearts that takes away God's glory. Holy Spirit, would you please do that? And, and, and Holy Spirit, I pray more than anything that you would not let us go from this. God, please, I pray that this is not something that would end here on Sunday morning. God, please hold us just like a father holding a, a squirrely little kid who wants to get away, who doesn't want to deal with what's in front of us. Holy Spirit, hold us. Hold us to these things. Hold us to this truth. Don't let us get away from these truths. God, I pray that your reputation, your fame, your renown would greatly overweigh our little, our little idolatrous selves, our reputations. Do that for us, Holy Spirit. Magnify your name in Jesus' name. Amen.